0: We would like to remind you that all speakers share their own experience, strength, and hope. They do not speak for the Convention, Region 2, or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. As stated in our pocket reference for OA members, it reminds us of the following. If you remove your body from the truth, when you are ready, the truth is nowhere to be found. But if you continue to bring your body to the truth, then when you are ready, the truth is waiting there for you. And that truth, our promise of recovery, is in every OA meeting when we join hands, pray together, and joyously, lovingly encourage one another, keep coming back. Um, I first heard this wonderful person back in 1993. He was the opening speaker at the World Service Convention. How many people were there? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, I have to tell you, um, just in case anybody comes up to me later and says, Surely, that was a really terrible speaker. I want you to know that I carry a gun with me. Okay? Um, you will not see my gun. My gun has no bullets. The only thing that my gun does is it has sound effects. Okay? And I will shoot you down. Okay? Because I really do believe in this person, and it was purely... An HP thing of of how events turned out that I was able to hook up with this person, and you know through the emails, you know um, we have had a lot of conversations. Some of them are very hilarious, which I don't think um, we need to go into tonight. Um, his friend could tell you some other stories, and other people who had been at the World Service Business Conference when he was elected as a region trustee, can tell you other stories, um, because we need to get on with our program. Um, I just want you guys to put your hands together, and I present to you Michael Kay from Denver, Colorado.
1: No, this is not a revival. Um, oh, for those of you who are listening to this on CD or tape, tough. You don't see how I'm dressed, so you don't get it. Neener, neener, neener. Um, Not that I'm bitter. Um, after a moment of silence, would you please join with me in the recitation of the third step prayer? With me and to do with me as Thou wilt, relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do Thy will, take away my difficulties, that victory over them a witness to those I would help of Thy power, Thy love, and Thy way of life. May I do Thy will. Always. Just so I won't feel alone. Are there any other compulsive overeaters here? Oh. It's so nice to see you all this evening. I bring you greetings from Denver, Colorado, where I left at dark 30 this morning. The flight left Denver at 6 o'clock. I live 45 minutes from the airport, which meant you go back, you have to be there. You know, they like you to be there two hours early. Uh, So I was up early, and I was just going, oh, thank God I did take a nap this afternoon. So I'm really snarky, so you're all be prepared. Um, How many of you in here are basically uh, 25 and under? Oh, okay, because I I have something to tell you, because this is what I was told when I first came to OA all those years ago. You are so fortunate to have found this program at your young age. (laughs) Because I came into the program when I was 22, and so I was just going... If I heard it once, I heard it a thousand times. And it finally got to the point where if I heard somebody say to me, you know, I'm so fortunate to have found this program at your young age, I promised God that I would not give them a big book enema. So, now, I say to you who are under 25, you truly are so fortunate to have found this program at your young age because when I was your age, I had been in OA for more than three years, and I've never left. And that's been 32 years. So that's my God's grace. Um, so that, that's important to know. So, and so fortunate to have found this program at your young age. <laughs> Are you a compulsive overeater? Do you eat when you're not hungry? Do you go on eating binges for no apparent reason? Do you find Feelings of guilt, or do you have feelings of guilt and remorse after overeating? Do you give too much time and thought to food? Do you look forward with anticipation and pleasure to the time when you can eat alone? Do you plan these secret binges ahead of time? Do you eat sensibly before others and make up for it alone? Is your weight affecting the way you live your life? Have you tried to diet for a week or longer only to fall short of your goals? Do you resent others telling you to use a little willpower to stop overeating? Despite evidence to the contrary, have you continued to assert that you can diet on your own whenever you wish? Do you crave to eat at a definite time, day or night, other than mealtime? Do you eat to escape from worries or trouble? Have you ever been treated for obesity or a food-related condition? Does your eating behavior make you or others unhappy? And the 16th question, which is not on this sheet, is your steering wheel sticky? (laughs) I know that maybe some of you might not have gone to such depths, but I was a car eater, and uh, my steering wheel was tremendously sticky. Um, Batman had the Batmobile. I had the Binge-Mobile. You know... It's really kind of bad when you go driving down the road and all of the wrappers from underneath the seat come flying forward. It's just kind of ugly. Um, what it was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. Well, here's the bottom line. I, I was born and raised in a good German-Irish-Roman-Catholic-Kansas farm family. That should, uh, that should take care about uh, 90% of what it was like. Um, I went to a public school taught by nuns for eight years and then public high school and public college. Um, I, was, I was, I guess, a normal weight kid. I don't know. It was in third grade I weighed 110 pounds. And from grade, from grade, grade um, three through 12 I gained 15 and a half pounds each year um, and therefore couldn't wear the same clothes the next year and all that other stuff. I don't have to tell you all. It was just really miserable. Miserable, miserable, and um, so when it was time for me to um, uh, to go to college and I had my college physical, I went, and the smartest thing that I ever did was I mowed a lawn before that morning before I went to to the uh, for my college physical. And you have to live realize I lived back in Kansas, so it was a little humid that day, and I'm sure I lost water weight. So when I got on the scales, it said 232, and I was just going, Wow. That's a lot. And, um, you know, it was. It was a lot of weight. I weigh less now than I did when I was in the seventh or eighth grade. I still don't know what I weigh because I don't weigh myself because the numbers are an indication of goodness and badness to me. And I let the doctor weigh me. I have a whole thing about medical doctors anyway. But I went, um, the last time I had a physical, I went to there. And I don't know about the rest of you, but... I don't care what they'll diagnose me with. I have to get on that freaking scale. So here it is. All day long, I'm at work. And I'm going, oh, God, I've got to get on that scale. Oh, God, I've got to get on that scale. Oh, God, i got to oh get on that scale. This doctor's worked with me for many, many years. So I get in there, and the doctor says, oh, I'm not going to weigh you today. You look fine. <laughs> I could have killed him. I had worked up all of this stuff. And then he says, oh, you look fine. Now, most people would say, oh, that must have been wonderful. I go, no, I've got a resentment now because I've worked up to this. So, you know, when the medical doctor says you look fine, that's something from somebody from where I came from. You know, I'm a, I'm a sugar addict. I can eat the stuff whether it's frozen, baked, raw, thawed, or indifferent. My first degree is in biology education and I know that certain things have to be done to make medicine and all that other stuff but I've eaten moldy fruitcake under the auspices of I could use the penicillin. <laughs> Some of us just use little things you know, we've got our excuses. Um, I've eaten frozen food you know I to this day that even though I have a microwave, I, for so many years I ate cold food that cold food is just fine. Now, my four basic food groups at one time were sugar, fat, flour, and chocolate. And um, and uh, donuts were the perfect four basic food group. You know, oof, oof. Um, yeah, kind of miss those days, but then I don't. One of the jobs that I had... Uh, while I was in college both times, um, I lived in a funeral home. And because, well, it was wonderful the first when I lived in the funeral home the first time because I got my room free and I received a stipend each month, which was really nice. And then when I went back to school to work on my degree in accounting, I worked for the other funeral home in town. This, there was a separation of several years when I went back. And so I worked for the other funeral home in town. And there... Here's how I worded it on my resume because it's just kind of odd to say, but I assisted the funeral director in removal of remains from site of expiration. For those of you who are wondering what that really means, it sounds so governmental, I picked up dead human bodies. And I remember the one in particular that haunts me to this day. It was one of those beautiful clear days in Kansas and um, it was a fall day, it was in October the sky was one of those wonderful blue Midwest days. It was just absolutely gorgeous. And we, I'd gone to this lady's house. We got the call about uh, 5.30, about 5, 530 on, a, on a Monday morning. And so I met the funeral director at the house. Well, I knew something was up because this is Kansas, for goodness sake. And there's, there's a lot of dirt and all that stuff. But she had an open carport, and it would sweat. It was clean. I walked into the house, and there were tchotchkes all over the place, but they were dusted. And I thought, ooh, this is wild. When we walked into the bedroom, um, there was the deceased, her hair was coiffed, you could smell powder, her nails were done, and she was between 350 and 400 pounds. Now, the funeral director is about my size. And, you know, we're supposed to be very dignified and all this other stuff. And my face can be red like the cheap novel it really is. <laughs> and so, I'm, so I just kind of go to him and I just go, how are we going to do this? And he literally said, go out to the car and get the tarp. So I went out to the car to get the tarpaulin. And what we had to do with the family there, we, um, we rolled the deceased on our side We rolled the tarpaulin, and then we literally had to drag her across the bed and put her on the cot. Well, I'm just scared to death because I'm not a big guy, and this is literally, truly dead weight. And I'm just going, because it's all about me. She may be dead, but it's all about me. (laughs) And I'm going, because, and we've got the little cot, and we're And all I want to hear is this click, 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 four clicks, so that I know that the thing is um, in place so that we can get her to the car, to the hearse. And I was just going, oh, God, just help me. He did. It was done. I went to my OA meeting that night and wept bitterly because this woman died of my disease. I saw this disease, and it scared the pee out of me. Um, My mom is the one who 12-stepped me. Um, That woman had tried everything. Goodness gracious. She'd been to this. She'd been to that. She'd been on egg and grapefruit. She'd been on egg and spinach and all this other stuff, and nothing ever worked for her. And I figured if it didn't work for her, it wasn't going to work for me. I was just resigned to being fat. So um, she talked about going to, um, to Overeaters Anonymous and all that other stuff, and that was in March of 1974. I had gone, um, I was in college when I joined OA. I was back at home um, to do my student teaching. So um, and I say, I had gone with, to a, my first OA meeting in March of 1976, about the middle of March of 1976. And the minute I walked into that room, I knew I was home because these people understood. When they talked about food, I was just going, yeah, that's me." So um, so I thought, this is perfect. So I asked Mom if I could go back to the meeting with her the next week, and she said, no, find your own meeting. This is a woman who'd never had boundaries before.
2: <laughs>
1: I was not a man in recovery and not very happy at that point. So I did what every normal compulsive reader would do. I ate for the next two weeks. Yeah. And um, so... My recovery, I, I always say, began on April the 6th of 1976 at the fire station in Olathe, Kansas, with a, with a group of Happy housewife Homemakers Group, you know, because that's what it pretty much was at that time. And so that was my home group for many, many years. Um, and it's nice because some folks from Kansas City are, are here, and this one gal and I went to meetings together at the same place for a long time. For a long, long time, we still know the same folks. There are so few of us. You know what's really scary, and it's kind of, and it's and it saddens me tremendously, is we should have a gazillion old timers in this place. Just a bunch of us. Now I know that this diff- this is a, a a terribly difficult disease to work with, but by God, I never left, and these other folks haven't either. No, we might not be model perfect and all this other stuff, but. I'm still here, and there's a reason why. I'm cheap. I'm not going to go to any place where I have to have somebody weigh me and then scream, I'm You know, that just doesn't work for me. As I said, numbers are an indication of goodness and badness to me. Um, I wish I could tell you I came into this program and I said, oh, I'll never have to eat compulsively again. Oh, yippee, skippy! and I've been absent ever since. No. I hit the the frozen zingers the first night after my OA meeting. You know, I don't know why I ever ate the stuff. I should have just plastered it right to my thighs because that's exactly where it went. Um, I fiddle-farted around with the program for a while, but I never left. And in January of 1979, I had a severe relapse for eight months, and it was ugly. For those of you who have abstinence right now, I implore, beg, I ask you profusely, don't mess with the food. Just don't go back there. Those of us who have relapsed, we know the hell of all of that. And so I took the bite of that one cookie, and for the next eight months, I was miserable. Now, there were some hilarious moments with that. I remember the time I was at a, um, at a meeting in Manhattan, Kansas. I picked up one of my coworkers in Topeka, Kansas, drove to Manhattan, Kansas. On my way back to Kansas, the Kansas City area where I lived, I stopped by the, um, the Dunkin' Donut shop. And I bought um, three dozen donuts. Mm-hmm. Well, for the church group. Um my car was the church, I was the congregation, and I was the pastor. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, um, I ate between 26 and 29 of these damn things. And so, I kind of got a little sick after a while. So, as I was traveling east on the interstate <laughs> in Kansas, I threw them out on the interstate. And when I shared this at one of the meetings, somebody said, where on the interstate?
2: <laughs>
1: uh, it's at the bend right before you get into Lawrence, Kansas, because whenever I drive back there, um, uh, <laughs> I still feel those donut ghosts. Um, Do you want relief or do you want recovery? I'm not not asking you for your answer. I know what you want. You're here, aren't you? But how many of us actually, I did not come in here, in all honesty, to become a spiritual giant because I'm not. I did not come in here to become a buff babe, which I'm not. And here's what what really torqued me off when I got the maintenance. I actually thought the following was going to happen. I thought I was going to become 6'2", have long, curly, golden locks, have a body of Adonis and having people fight all over me, and you know what happened. I stayed the same height. The only way I'd get to be 6'2 is if I wore platform shoes. I'd have to buy a wig for the the hair, and there's less of it as we speak. Um, And the body of Adonis, well, we've given that up to God, you know. But the thing of it is, I was at uh, maintenance the first time for 15 seconds because then I, could, then I realized that I could eat more. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Years ago when I first came in, they were fighting over the wars, uh, the food wars with the gray sheet and the orange sheet. And it was just uglier than homemade sin. I mean, I just sat there. We were fighting over food for goodness sake. You know, God forbid people were dying, but we were fighting over what should be on a food sheet. So they came out, I was at the year, at at conference the year they went from um, orange sheet and gray sheet to blue sheet. And I've decided that it was all a bunch of bullshit. (laughs) Anyway, I know it's a cheap joke, but it's a good one, folks. It's a good one. Um, There are several things that I've done in this program that most folks haven't. I left Kansas. I moved to Colorado, met the lust of my life, and I moved to Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, that's not necessarily what I would call a bastion of liberality. Um, I love Utah dearly, but when you're living with your boyfriend near the temple, it's a little dicey. Um, uh, um, I did go to LDS Business College, and this is fascinating to me. To me, it's no big deal, but I was not of the predominant faith there. And I ran, uh, I ran, as, um, I ran for um, a student body position, and I was elected vice president of the student body on the um, platform of the minority has the right to be heard. I didn't tell them which minority. <laughs> they didn't ask. It was long before the don't ask, don't tell policy, okay? So, um, yeah, here's, here's a really unique thing. Um, Living in, yeah, yeah, that was, that's that's, that's enough to say. Uh, that's, Utah will always have a special place in my heart to me because that's where my program, I really found out that I could move from everybody that I knew and love and stay abstinent. And here's another thing that I found out. Some places are just a little less tolerant than others. And um, at this one meeting that I dearly loved in Salt Lake City area, um, they were, they Somehow they started to bitch about their husbands, so I started to bitch about mine, and that was the last time they ever bitched about their husbands. Um... <laughs> oh, you know, I stop and look at this, and I go, how in the world did I ever get through this? I don't know. How... Another question I have, how many family members are here? You know, spouses, children, and all this other stuff. I know that there are two here, but are there others, you know? Welcome, welcome, welcome. We do welcome you, and aren't we just a joy to live with? Um, uh, my ex once said to me, and I love the way that you pad this question. They say, uh, honey, um, are you going to a meeting today? Isn't that somewhat of a loaded question? And for those of us who are compulsive overreaders, we're going, Hmm, I wonder what that means. I wonder what they're going to eat. I wonder who they're going to see. I just wonder, period. I have laughed about so much of this stuff in my life, but I've also cried. Many of you, many of the folks who know me don't know of the hours. They see this wild kind of crazy little character that's run around and Done a lot of service hither, tither, and yon, and all this other stuff. But what many people don't know are the many hours of um, of prayer and meditation that I do, um, because they don't see that. Um, I've been I've been single now. This is what 2008. So 22 years this go round. And um, somebody once asked me. They said, "Well, why don't you have a partner?" And before I could get the words out. And it surprised the key waddling out of both of us. I said, because I love God more than I do anybody else. Thus, the collar. And I don't mean that lightly. Now, I I take my um, my vows seriously. But, see, I did not want to wear this this evening. Because, but I was speaking with my um, religious superior, and he said, Oh, yes, you will wear that. And I said... Harry, I hate this thing. He says, I know. That's why you'll wear it. And you know, that's why I was with abstinence. I hate it at times, but I do it because the other part is just ugly. It's miserable. It's nasty. It's painful. And it's deadly. My mom died due to this disease. Um, She had a, um, oh, she horse-assed around with abstinence for a long time. I loved her dearly, but, and um, she and I always got along. I could always tell when she was torqued with me, I'd say, because she might have been my mother, but she was also an OA member. So I would say to her, now, Marge, how's your abstinence doing? (laughs) And she just told me how the cow ate the cabbage. And I just said, well, thank you for sharing. Um. And here's the other part of it. We would talk about the steps and all this other stuff. And I said, well, Mom, have you ever done a four-step inventory? And she said, no. And I said, oh, really? And she said, well, yeah, I go to confession. And I go, well, I do, too, but I don't trust those buzzers. <laughs> because I, don't, I didn't need any more condemnation. Um. Here's the other part that I think is so important for uh, for me anyway, is that I ain't perfect. And it just irritates the mm-mm out of me. I'm just not perfect. There are a couple of things that, um, as you can tell, this is one of the original 12 and 12, and it's kind of been used a bit. And on page 27 of this old version that I have, it says, a lot of people like to take Stuff out of context. And there's nothing that drives me more crazy than taking anything out of context. Especially the traditions and the steps and all that other stuff. But here's the one that there's one little quote that I always hear a lot. It says, We cannot fail to recover. Well, that's part of a phrase of an entire sentence. Do you know what the sentence says before that? It says, Once we compulsive overeaters truly take the third step, we cannot fail to recover. That's the whole thing. And then also, on page 58 of the 12 and 12, it also says we cannot fail. But it says there, From now on, we will strive to keep ourselves entirely ready for any transformations our higher power wants to bring about in us. Having such an attitude, we cannot fail. So, you cannot fail. But... There's always a slide in there, isn't there? Um, Here's how it works for me. I read the big book. I read the OA 12 and 12. I go to meetings. I give service. I talk with my sponsor. I work with newcomers. I write because I don't like it. And um, I pray like hell. And if that doesn't work, I go to meetings. I read the big book. You know, there's that mantra. But I want to share with each and every one of you the importance of living this life in an abstinent, sane manner. I had literally quit jobs without having another one and said, okay, God, I know I'm not supposed to be there. You best get your button in gear and take care of me. And you know what? I never went hungry. Of course I'd never go hungry. I'm a compulsive overeater, for God's sake. <laughs> I always had a roof over my head. I always had clothes on my back and all that other stuff. And when I trust totally and completely I'm given this wonderful gift. I don't take this gift of abstinence lightly. I was given this gift on August the fifth of nineteen seventy-nine, and I wish I could say I've been perfect with the abstinence since. Um, I wish I could say I'm normal, and as one of my dear, sweet, really rude friends says, "Normal is setting on a dryer." And, <laughs> and unfortunately, I hate to admit this in public. She's right. But here's what I I do want to share with each and every one of you is this. This program works, but what are you willing to give up? Are you really willing to give up the foods, the family members, the spouse, the boss, the job, and all that stuff to maintain abstinence? I did. I had to. I really had no choice. If I really live this spiritual life, then I don't listen to what you all say except many of you have the wisdom and the guidance that I need. Joy, peace, serenity and love is ours. But I'm not always I didn't always want that. I didn't always want that but I do now. Um, this is probably one of the uh, best things that I've ever done for me, is to come to the program of Overeaters Anonymous. I try to live daily in Steps 6 and 7, which prevents me from having to do Steps 4 and 5, and ultimately Steps 8 and 9. You know. Nobody's tougher on me than me. And I really have tried tried all these years just to become a kinder, gentler, loving individual. It's so easy to do that to you. But to do that for me, that's one of the damn toughest things that I've ever done. And I'm still working on it. I'm still working on it. The other aspect of it is For those of you who are still in the program and you still have your weight to lose and all that other stuff, welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. Truly welcome home. Where else are we going to find this? And one day it will click, but maybe not the day that you want it, like on Monday. (laughs) You know, um, I, I remember that very last binge that I had and the insanity of this disease. I remember I wanted to... Uh, <laughs> I, I, was, I bought a package of nutter butter, peanut butter cookies to kill them. I jumped up and down on them by a, by a dumpster and all this other stuff, and I was getting ready to throw them in the dumpster. And I looked at these cookies, and I said, Hmm, I know what they taste like whole. I wonder what they taste like... Fruit. They did go in the dumpster. They did go in the dumpster, but there was that split second gift that I was given, and I've been given many split second gifts. Um, it's a, it's kind of a blessing and a shame that they only gave me 30 minutes. <laughs> Maybe for you, you're just going, "Oh, thank God for small favors." Um, but I, my favorite, my favorite passage in our in our OA 12 and 12. Um, is from page 106. And I just love these these two paragraphs because they embody for me what I try to do in my life. We who began working the steps in order to recover from compulsive eating now find that through them we have embarked on a lifelong journey of spiritual growth. From the isolation of food obsession, we have emerged into a new world, walking hand in hand with our friends and our higher power, We are now exploring this world using the great spiritual principles embodied in the 12 steps as the map to guide our way. We gratefully follow the footsteps of many others who have walked this way before us and we're gratified to be making footsteps of our own for others to follow. Those of us who live this message don't simply carry the message. We are the message. Each day that we live well, we are well and we embody the joy of recovery which attracts others who want what we found in OA. We're always happy to share our secret, the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous, which empower each of us to live well and be well one day at a time. Thank you.
3: Michael that was an awesome share. Hi, I'm Katie, I'm a compulsive reader. Hi everybody. Hello how that sounds, Thanks. I'm also your entertainment chair. OK, what you are about to experience is a dramatic presentation where our performer takes the audience on a roller coaster ride that most of us have been on, the roller coaster of food, weight and body size. She finds blissful oblivion in the sweet, rich heaven called chocolate. But her sweet tooth becomes a terrible obsession. She hates her body, so she diets, binges, hates herself for binging, and diets some more. Her whole life is about food, weight, and body size. What would her life be like if she was not wishing for a better body? If she could just lose weight, everything would be all right. But would it? Eventually, she discovers how and where to find a true haven of perfect harmony, peace, and is finally able to get off the roller coaster she's been on her whole life. A talented OA member entertains and delights us with her gut-wrenching honesty, startling insights, and surprising humor in her story of survival, triumph, and chocolate. Put your hands together for Susan H., who presents her one-woman show entitled Nirvana, a glimpse of survival and triumph over chocolate.
4: it was dangerous. With food, I was complete. My twin brother, my sister, who's two years younger than I am, and my mom are sitting in the new living rooms of our new home. I'm 10 years old. I don't know why we're living in this new home, and I don't know why Daddy isn't here with us. My mom explains that she and Daddy are getting a divorce. I don't know how I know what that means, but I do. I don't know how I know not to cry, but I don't. I go to my bedroom and cry instead. I share a room with my sister. I have the top bunk. It's raining in Seattle like it always does, and I crawl into my top bunk and cry as quietly as I can. I don't want to disturb anyone. My daddy won't be living with us anymore, and my brother's going with him. A boy needs his father. Well, so does a girl. I'll be living with my mom, my sister, and my cat. I miss my daddy. He doesn't seem to miss me. He's very involved in my brother's Little League football team. Every other weekend we go visit daddy. And we watch home movies of my brother's football games and practices, and and my daddy cheers him on. Like it's happening in real life. (laughs) I wish daddy loved me like that. He can't, but I can. It's my friend. Some people say she's imaginary, but she's not. She's real. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. I am always here. All you have to do is come and get me. I love candy. I like candy so much that I steal $20 worth, 10 cents a bar, and stash it in my plastic green Girl Scout bag. Every kind of candy there is. In a rare moment of generosity, I offer to share my stash with my brother. I have it hidden away in the closet. But he tells on me. The babysitter takes it away. The next morning at Mom's, I'm called into Mom's room, and all my candy is laid out on great-grandma's huge mahogany bed, my mom standing beside it. Well, do you have anything to say for yourself? I don't say a word. You will apologize for stealing this candy. You'll pay for what you've eaten out of your allowance. My allowance? But I can see by her face that I have to do this thing. So I screw up all my courage. I ride my bike to the neighborhood grocery store. And I speak to the store owner. I stole some candy from your store. I've eaten some of it. He doesn't seem very surprised or upset. I'll bet my mom told him I was coming. I'll... I'll pay for what I've eaten out of my allowance. Well, I don't think that's necessary, young lady. I think you've learned your lesson, haven't you? Oh, yes. I'm out of there just as fast as my little feet and stingray bike will take me. Whew, off the hook for my allowance. A month later, my friend appears again. Susan, try again. Go to a store where they don't know you. He's on the back of my bike. If you don't share it with your brother, you won't get caught. So I ride my bike to the 7-Eleven down the street from the neighborhood grocery store. They don't know me as well there. I don't have my Girl Scout bag, so I have to be more particular. Let's see. Baby Ruth. Butterfinger. I'll enjoy. And I stuff them in my underpants. On the way out the door, the man at the counter stops me and says he knows that I have some candy. I protest. He says he knows where I have it hidden. I'm mortified. He points to a big round mirror in the corner of the store, asks for my phone number, and calls my babysitter. The next day, I'm called into Mom's room, and I see the familiar scene. Mom, mahogany bed, candy. What are we going to do with you? I am unrepentant. I'm grounded. Grounded for a month. She says she wants me to learn my lesson. And I do. I never feel candy again. I just get a little more sneaky about it. Two years later, we're all eating dinner around the TV, watching Gilligan's Island and Star Trek with Captain James T. Kirk. We're eating the usual fare, broiled wieners on toast with melted cheese. Mm. Food and television together, what could be better? The phone rings, my mom answers. She seems alarmed. She tells the person to call an ambulance, and she'll be right there. She hangs up, says that it's dad's girlfriend, and that daddy has to go to the hospital. The next day there's a knock at the door. I go to the door and ask, Who is it? As I've been trained to do. And the deep, familiar voice of our pastor answers, Dr. Gillespie, what's he doing here? Dr. Gillespie comes into the living room and gathers us around him, just as he does every Sunday for the children's sermon. As usual, I'm not paying much attention to what he says. He finishes by saying, your father is asleep now. Do you understand? We all nod our heads obediently. I under—I understand what asleep means. My mother's lips tremble and her voice cracks. She says, I don't think they do. Dr. Gillespie takes a deep breath and says, your father is with God in heaven now. Do you understand? My mother begins to cry, and I understand. I go to my room and cry instead. In the days that follow, our house is filled with flowers, a huge bouquet. I've never seen such things before, but I'm so grateful to Mrs. Stoddard, John Stoddard's mom. He's a neighborhood kid from down the street. She doesn't send us flowers. She sends us toffee squares. <laughs> buttery shortbread topped with silky chocolate and sprinkled with slivered almonds. Mm, a whole folder's coffee can full of them. Susan, I am here. I will save you. I will take away your sadness, your despair. Just have one. I will make your world right. And they do. I hope that I'm in a dream from which I'll wake up I'll wake up and find that my daddy hasn't died, that he's here, and it will all have been a terrible, bad dream. Two days later, we're all getting dressed up. I don't know why. And then this big, huge, long car rolls up to our little yellow house, and we all pile in. There are drinks, an ice bucket, and a TV right in the car. We drink Shirley Temples in silence. It seems strange. Why are we all drinking Shirley Temples in silence in this big car? And why is everything so serious? I want to yell, Why are we all dressed up? Why are we in this big car? And where are we going? But I don't. I watch the world go by outside the big, huge car, wishing for my daddy. How is it possible that I will never see him again? How is it possible that his life could end? How is it possible that we all will die someday? Oh, I want to wake up! The big car pulls into a parking lot, and I see a sign. "Washelli's funeral home. Funeral home. This must have something to do with my dad. A spark of hope ignites. Perhaps a piece of the puzzle is here. Perhaps there's something here for me to hang on to. We must be coming here for a reason. The driver helps me out of the car, and I feel like a grown-up lady being helped out of the car by a white-gloved man in uniform. We walk into a very cool, very dark building with marble floors. This is obviously a very special place. It's some kind of wonderful surprise meant to help me out of my bad dream. The adults speak in hushed tones, and we are ushered into another very cool, very dark room with a light in the center of it. I look to see what wonderful surprise might be in the light. And I realize that I'm looking at my dead father in a casket. The the light is designed to illuminate his body. I can't breathe. I think I'm going to faint. My sister, my mother, my brother all go to look at my daddy in the casket. What are you thinking? Why are we here? Why do I need to see this? I want to yell, but I don't. I should do what I'm supposed to do. I should go look at my daddy in the casket. I don't know if it's the light or the makeup, but his skin has a greenish cast to it and and the lipstick makes him look like a clown. Maybe that's why my brother pokes him. He, He pokes him right in the arm. Everybody laughs. I want to vomit. No, I will not faint. I will not vomit. I will control myself. My brother picks up his arm and lets it drop. More laughter. Oh, wake up. Why is he doing that? What is he thinking? Wake up. But I don't wake up. My daddy is dead, and I'm looking right at him. I'm acting badly. I shouldn't be upset. Don't let other people see that I'm upset. Oh, if only the toffee squares were here! The drive back is as quiet as the drive-in. I watch the world go by outside the big, huge car. And I know now that I will not wake up. Two days later, we're all getting dressed again. The big, huge car comes for us. This time, I'm beginning to enjoy life inside the big car. I'm catching on to the TV and drinking thing. All the flowers that were in our house, and some that I haven't seen before are in the church. The same church I've been to Sunday after Sunday after Sunday with my dad. I'm still squirming in the same pew, second, on the right. The casket's here again. This time it's closed. Praise God. There's an American flag draped over it. Dr. Gillespie's voice booms throughout the sanctuary, and my sister, who's sitting next to me, begins to cry. My mother, whose blue eyes are a steely gray, says, Quit being so dramatic. My sister stifles her sobs, which soon become sniffles, but her beautiful brown eyes stay big and watery. My uncle, who looks a lot like my dad, and another man, who I don't know, begin to fold the flag that's on the casket into a triangle. This I understand. I've seen this before at dusk at Girl Scout camp. That's my brother's cue to stand up at the end of the aisle. My uncle hands him the folded triangle and tells him that he's the man in the family now. (laughs) That is just crazy. He's tense. He's no more a man than I am a woman, and I certainly am not a woman, even though I'm five minutes closer by birth. My brother watches as friends with my dad walk the casket down the long, red-carpeted aisle of the sanctuary. Then his chin trembles, his eyes squeeze tight, and in what seems like slow motion, he bursts into tears. This is the one and only time I've seen my twin brother cry. He tried so hard to be a man. But this scared little ten-year-old boy sobs with the flag in his hands. I stand with my family while we watch the men put the casket into the hearth. It looks like it might be really heavy. They're working really hard. My brother tries to help, but he just gets in the way. I realize that I am seeing the last of my dad. The men close the doors. The dream is real, but I do not cry. I will not cry. I eat toffee squares instead. I find another way out of the bad dream that is my life. Books. I'm reading Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and one morning I pack my book into my book bag, and after school, instead of going to my babysitter's smoke-filled, beer-swilling soap opera house, I go straight to my house instead. I crawl up over the bushes, and I walk precariously along the fence, that separates our house from the neighbors and stop at the kitchen window. If I push in and up, I might be able to open it. Oh, not too hard or it'll crash into the sink.
2: <laughs>
4: ah, I'm <last. laughs> And I can't, time for Kitty Kitty Bang Bang. The last page of the book contains Monsieur Bonbon's secret fudge recipe. I know I can make this recipe myself. Let's see. Saucepan. Yep. Sugar. Good. Milk. Mm-hmm. Chocolate. And butter. And I make my first batch of homemade fudge. It's all mine and no one will know about it. Let's see. Stir for five to ten minutes. <laughs> I don't think so.
2: <laughs>
4: Ooh. Ha! Ah, hop! Ooh, I know. I'll put it in the freezer. I'm learning the tricks of the trade. <laughs> After a very long five minutes, I pull out Monsieur Bonbon's secret fudge. Mmm, chocolate. Sweet chocolate. Only it does seem like an awful lot. Maybe Michelle, my next door neighbor, would like some. So I cut across the garden and offer up Monsieur Bonbon's secret fudge. Ew, it's so sugary. And there's something wrong with that? (laughs) I don't get it. Why doesn't she like this magical potion, this secret recipe that takes me out of the bad dream that is my life and out of the smoke-filled, beer-swilling TV house? Fine. I'll have it myself. See if I care. And I go home and I eat my first batch of homemade fudge. After all, I can't steal candy anymore. (laughs) Around this time, my mom looks up and down my body and makes an appointment for me to go to the doctor. So on the day of my appointment, I ride my bike to the doctor's office. I go into the familiar room where I get my allergy shots every week and crawl up onto the table. Dr. Harris looks up my nose. He pokes me and he looks in my ears. His nose and ears have hair in them. (laughs) Dr. Harris. Get it?
2: (laughs) He
4: asked me to stand on a tall, white scale, he moves some weights around, he writes something on his clipboard, and calmly announces that I'm obese. Obese? How can I be obese? Fat people are obese! My babysitter is obese. My mom says that she must weigh at least 350 pounds. I'm 5 feet, I weigh 111 pounds. I am not obese! I'm in the fifth grade when I go on my first diet, and it doesn't include Monsieur Bomb Bomb's secret fudge, that's for sure. My mother's eyes sweep up and down my body, and I watch her pretty blue eyes turn stone cold gray. Don't look at me like that, Mommy. What am I supposed to look like? How can I make the sparkle come back to your eyes? She offers to buy me a whole new wardrobe if I lose weight. This must be really important to her. What if I can't do it? I must lose weight. I must lose weight. I must lose weight. The mantra of my life begins. I go without Monsieur Bonbon's secret fudge, almond joy, sneakers and dessert. I lose 11 pounds. I gain a new wardrobe and the blue eyes sparkle once again. It's a whole new me in the sixth grade when my mother moves me to my brother's school. John is put in the advanced math class. I'm put in the average math class. John's put in the advanced reading class, and I'm put in the average reading class. Math, I understand, but reading? John has never read a book in his life, and I've devoured books. He's reading Tolkien, and I'm reading the Bobsy Twins. Well, I will not stand for this. I read everything I'm supposed to read and begin reading Tolkien. Mom, I think I should be in the advanced reading class. I'm reading everything I'm supposed to read and more. Honey, the tests show that you read well, but you're a slow reader. I read Boyd Alexander, C.S. Lewis, Ursula Le Guin, and find that I have a reprieve from the bad dream that is my life in fantasy and science fiction. Mom, I'm reading everything John is and more. I think I should be in that class. Honey, the tests show you read well, but you don't retain what you read. I work hard on my book reports, citing detail after detail. I will get in that class. Mom, please get me in that class, please. Honey, it's too late. The year almost over. It's clearly time to take things into my own hands. I go to my sixth grade teacher. Mrs. Lang, I think I should be in the advanced reading class. My brother's read the Tolkien books, and so have I. I've read the Chronicles of Narnia, the Earthsea Trilogy, A Wrinkle in Time. Susan, your reading skills are fine. We couldn't put you in the same class with your brother, so you stayed in class with me. Why can't I be in the same class with my brother? It's not a good idea. Why isn't it a good idea? It just isn't. I don't understand. Why did he get to be in the advanced reading class? Why did he get to live with Daddy? And why are all these girls clamoring around me all the time? What's John like? What time does John come home? Can I come over with you and play? Oh, it is so obvious. Susan, the 7-Eleven's not far. Baby Ruth, Butterfingers, Almond Joy, Relief from the shining star that is John. Who cares about your weight? Forget about your mom. All she thinks about is John anyway. Go ahead. Give yourself a treat. You deserve it. So I ride my bike to the 7-Eleven in my quiet little girl rage and I stock up. And so it goes. I binge. I diet. I diet. I binge. My life is transformed into a new bad dream of binging, dieting, binging, hating myself for binging and dieting some more. And the stone cold gray eyes grow colder still. Oh, if only I could lose weight. Mom would love me. John would love me. I'd have a boyfriend. I must lose weight. I must lose weight. I must have a piece of toast. And another with jam. And another with jelly. And another with cinnamon and sugar. And another and another and another
2: and another and another. another.